0: You're listening to Heart Sounds, TCTMD's award-winning podcast hosted by Shelley Wood.
1: Hello and welcome to the Heart Sounds podcast for March 2022. This is the podcast where I sum up some of the top content on TCTMD this past month and let you listen in on some of the interviews that TCTMD reporters did to pull together those stories. At this very minute, I have a suitcase sitting open in my bedroom, half-filled, while I try to remember what on earth I used to pack when I traveled to in-person conferences. ACC 2022 in Washington will be my first in-person cardiology conference since 2019, and I don't think I'll believe it's actually going to happen for me until I pick up my badge. Setting my travel jitters aside for now, let's have a listen to some of the things we learned here at home in the weeks gone by. Todd Neal delved into a feature story this month that asked the question how far should cardiologists go when it comes to treating family members? As Todd found out, how you answer this question really depends on where you live. In many parts of the world, treating family members beyond the management of minor ailments is frowned upon except in emergent or urgent situations. In other parts of the globe, withholding care would defy cultural norms, not to mention the assumptions of the families themselves. Here's how Sarita Rao of Apollo Hospital Indoor India explained it.
0: So in India, we generally think that the concept is that if you're not good enough to treat your own family, then you're not good enough to treat anyone else. And the second thing is that your family generally trusts you the most. So in India, we generally treat our family members ourselves. So if it's uh, something which is related to our own speciality, for example, since I'm an intervention cardiologist, and when my father had a heart attack, I did his uh, angioplasty, his tempting. But in uh, some situations, if it's something not related to my speciality, then I would prefer that he would be treated by a colleague who's uh, a specialist in that particular speciality.
2: So your father had a heart attack, so that's an emergency situation. Would you do, say, an elective PCI on a parent?
0: Yes, I would definitely do an elective PCI on my parent because I think I would be giving him the best possible care.
1: In other countries, however, treating blood relatives or spouses, if not explicitly outlawed by regulatory bodies, is at least discouraged in ethical guidance. The American Medical Association, as well as the United Kingdom, advise physicians to avoid, where possible, providing medical care to anyone with whom the physician has a close personal relationship. Athena Pappas of Lifespan Cardiovascular Institute and Brown University in Providence, Rhode Island, told Todd about a time when she was traveling with her own mother, who started developing symptoms that Pappas suspected was an MI. They drove to the nearest hospital where the diagnosis was confirmed
3: she was having a heart attack and i said oh we should you know we got to get her to the unit and they said well you're the only cardiologist there what do you think we should do and i thought oh no 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 this is not the way <laughs> this should be handled and uh, we had her um you know shipped out right away which was good anyway because it was a small hospital but i remember very distinctly thinking yes i'm qualified as a cardiologist but i should not be caring for my mother
2: so you didn't you didn't want to make any of the serious medical decisions in that situation. You wanted, and so you got her transferred to a larger center.
3: Right. I gave my opinion as a cardiologist, mm-hmm. but I also realized the emotions that were uh, embedded might impede my logical decision making. As hard as I was working to say, "Here's what we do when somebody's having a heart attack," X Y Z, I could feel that it would be hard to maintain that emotional separation. That was just my you know, one-time sort of dramatic experience. Mm -hmm. But I think there are other uh, clear layers that, you know, an ethicist could sort of peel back. And that is that a family member might not disclose things to you. Maybe my mother was using drugs and didn't want to tell me, or maybe they want to decline doing something. So sometimes we see that where a family member thinks somebody should do it, but the family member doesn't think that. So how do they do that if they're actually involved in their care and decision-making? What if it was sensitive or intimate information or sexually transmitted disease, for example, or, you know, maybe there's a negative outcome? What's the consequence if, as a physician, something negative happens? How does that affect you emotionally, psychologically, and your relationship with the rest of your family? I think that when you think it through, it's those other things which seem subtle, that can both lead to probably less than ideal situations.
1: Listening to Papas, you'd think this topic might be cut and dry. But Todd's story delves into some of the nuances and considerations, not to mention the gray areas. You can find Todd's feature on the homepage of tctmd.com. If you're looking for another long read, Michael O'Reardon delved into a topic that has its roots in a controversy on Twitter last year following the publication of the VARC-3 recommendations. VARC stands for the Valve Academic Research Consortium, and in April 2021, the group set out some updated definitions that they proposed should be used in clinical studies of aortic valve disease. At the time, cardiovascular surgeons in many parts of the globe took issue with a number of the proposed endpoints, among them rehospitalization, bleeding, and myocardial infarction definitions. The discussion online at the time was, how shall I put it, rancorous. But that online pushback ultimately bore fruit in the form of a position statement published this month in multiple cardiovascular surgery journals on both sides of the pond, with physicians representing five different international cardiothoracic surgery societies. This story warrants reading in full, as does the statement itself, to understand the endpoints being questioned and why. As Patrick Myers of Lausanne University Hospital in Switzerland, who is also Secretary General of the European Association for Cardiothoracic Surgery, told Mike, hospitalizations are a sticking point because if these are included in a primary composite endpoint, they might unfairly tilt results in favor of less invasive procedures. Surgeons would prefer a 30-day blanking window since treating physicians might be more apt to admit a patient following a surgical procedure than they would, for example, a transcatheter one. On the other hand, the emphasis on clinically relevant thrombosis may overlook thrombus that doesn't produce symptoms but may have longer-term effects on valve durability. For his part, Philippe Genereux of Morristown Medical Center in New Jersey, lead author of the VARC-3 writing committee, told Mike he welcomed the opinions of the surgical groups calling the discussion healthy for aortic valve clinical research. Indeed, Myers, speaking with Mike, said it was important to see so many CV surgery societies worldwide come together to voice their concerns, but to do so thoughtfully and respectfully with, as he put it, the hope that they will be heard. Mike pointed out that this is only one of the areas where surgeons and cardiologists have had some high-profile disagreements in recent years. Mike put the question to Dr. Myers, do the different specialties and societies even get along?
0: I think we have excellent relationships. Mm-hmm. We we depend on each other in our in our daily work. So I would say that some of my closest colleagues and friends are cardiologists. Mm-hmm. Um, so it's it's definitely a, a very good working relationship. Now it's like a good marriage. It's not easy every day. <laughs> right. Um, <laughs> so so it, it's good to, to hash things out, and yeah. I mean, we're, we're all biased. Mm-hmm. Um, me as a surgeon, obviously I'm going to favor surgery, even if I don't see it that way. Just in, in the discussions that we have uh, in, in guideline committees and, and things like that, is we can be looking at exactly the same data and interpret mm-hmm. it completely differently. Um, and there's nothing nefarious behind that. that that's just, um, we all have our biases, and, and that's why it's important to have all stakeholders involved
1: survey results published in jack earlier this month reveal some sobering truths about what it's like to be pregnant while trying to pursue a career in cardiology women who become pregnant are often required to work extra hard in the months before going on mat leave and when that leave does arrive it's frequently unpaid and fleeting upon their return women may face penalties as well Not only are these experiences relatively common, reports TCTMD's Caitlin Cox, there are troubling signs that laws are being broken in a range of workplaces and that the health of mother and baby are being put at risk. The survey went out to more than 1,300 members of the ACC's Women in Cardiology section as well as to Women as One members. 323 responded, saying they'd been pregnant as a practicing cardiologist Please check out Caitlin's story to get the full picture. But for now, here's Martha Gulati, the paper's lead author and president-elect of the American Society for Preventive Cardiology, explaining the impetus behind the survey and its implications.
2: You know, in terms of what we know, I think it's surprising how little we know, you know, about women in cardiology and what are the barriers. And we're obviously, you know, we've been focusing for quite a few years, not, not even just the last 10 years actually it's been longer than that how do we get women into cardiology what is the barriers and i will say that the impetus for me to do this survey actually was specifically while i was chief of cardiology i realized you know where i was i didn't have um you know uh, i would say there was very two different policies like if you were hired by the hospital there was one set of rules. If you were hired by the university, there was another set of gotcha. rules and there's no, there's no federal mandate and it proved. So, you know, when, as a female chief of cardiology, I thought, Oh, I'm going to have ultimately hire, like at least 50% women. I mean, all the women are going to come here. And what I realized is that these were real barriers, not being able to have a strong policy in maternity leave where I was. And that was my impetus and 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 then my and because I just want to be full you know, fully honest. I don't have I, I don't have children, so it's not that these things personally affected my me alone, mm-hmm. although but as a woman, you know, we want our lives not to be necessarily adversely affected by natural things that happen in life.
1: A study published earlier this month in Circulation Cardiovascular Imaging asked a question that's been asked before. Can the incidental findings of breast arterial calcification found on mammography tell us anything about a woman's risk of cardiovascular disease down the road? This time around, researchers led by Carlos Iriberon of Kaiser Permanente in Oakland, California, prospectively followed 5,000 postmenopausal women for six and a half years to see how the presence of breast arterial calcification on their baseline mammograms correlated with later cardiovascular outcomes. Laura McEwen covered this for TCTMD and put the question to Iriberon, who put the findings in perspective.
0: So I think the sort of the overall take-home message is mammography may offer clues for cardiovascular disease risk and cardiovascular disease prevention. We know that mammography is a very successful universally accepted uh, screening test for breast cancer. Uh, Now, with this new information, it sort of makes it as a test that has to serve a dual function of providing useful information, not just for breast cancer, uh, but also for cardiovascular disease. Mm-hmm. And we have known this for years. This is not a, a novel finding. It's a confirmation of what we've known uh, for almost 20 years, that there's a correlation between calcification in the breast and, and heart disease risk and stroke. But this study is important and novel because it demonstrates that in a contemporary cohort, this was a prospective study. We did not look at records uh, historically. We looked prospectively. At women who attended mammography, and then we follow them over 6.5 years to see who developed heart disease, stroke, and other cardiovascular diseases. And we found that women who had breast calcifications in the mammogram were at 51% increased risk of heart disease and stroke, and a 23% increased risk of any form of cardiovascular disease. And this is after adjusting for all the cardiovascular risk factors
2: right, and and I did report on a similar study a few years ago. Um, it was out of New York. It was similar to this, and I remember them saying that radiologists are trained to look during mammography for back, but they don't necessarily report it on the mammography report. Um, what do you think about your study supports the assertion that it should be reported and that it should be used by clinicians?
0: My personal view is that indeed this study as the moves the needle and I, I think radiology should should be reporting presence and extent of personality conservation mammograms to women and to providers too.
2: It was a great experience. Um, It's kind of like putting actual faces to names that you may run into in the literature, on Twitter, just a variety of different settings. And, you know, it it is there's something to be said about the energy that's brought into a room of people that are passionate about the same thing. And, you know, being able to learn even intangible skills for trainees like leadership and, um, you know, how do you give an effective presentation? These are just all things that we kind of took for granted, I think, before the pandemic. And now that we're back to in person, I think there is a lot to gain. Um, and I, I'm really excited for the next one.
1: That is the voice of Priya Kotapalli, Chief Cardiology Fellow at UT Austin Dell Medical School in Texas. She was speaking with Yael Maxwell for Fellows Forum about what it's been like for cardiology trainees to do so much remote learning during the pandemic, and how they feel about returning to in-person meetings. Dr. Kotapali was speaking about the recent CRT meeting, but it's apropos for those of us returning to large cardiology congresses. Find Ya'el's video under the Fellows Forum tab on TCTMD to get fired up for ACC. That is it for Heart Sounds this month. There's plenty of other great content on the site, of course, including some really powerful blogs and videos from cardiologists who have stayed in Kiev and what their days now look like and how the world can help support Ukrainian physicians and citizens facing the brutal invasion by Russia. As we head into ACC later this week, you can also find my preview of some of the late breakers and guidelines that will be released and discussed at this year's in-person and virtual conference. I really hope I'll get to see some of you face-to-face or mask-to-mask, as it were. The entire team is booked to be on-site in D.C. That's Yael Maxwell, Laura McEwen, Todd Neal, Michael O'Reardon, and Caitlin Cox, as well as our clinical editor, Mamas Mamas. As I say, it is hard to believe this will all come to pass, but I'm hopeful. That is a word rarely used for so many reasons over the last few months and years. Hopeful. Thanks for tuning into Heart Sounds.
0: Do you love listening to Heart Sounds? Check out all new original content from TCTMD, featuring Talking Points with Dr. C. Michael Gibson and Roxart Radio with Dr. Roxanne and Moran. All new episodes are available on iTunes, Google Play, Spotify, and SoundCloud.